0: From 11FS, I'm Sarah Kachansky, and this is Fintech Insider News. This week we bring you N26's US launch, Revolut's new big bank hires, and CEO sneakers, K Swiss's new range just for CEOs. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 353 of Fintech Insider. Today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host David Breer. How are you doing today, David?
1: Super good. this is sort of first day back after a couple of days out. So I've been sunning myself on the North Norfolk coast. It's rather beautiful. Actually sunny? Uh, Very sunny. Yeah, it was like 32 degrees. I was swimming in the sea. It was beautiful. (laughs) Very
0: impressive. As always, we are not alone. We are joined by some awesome guests. Making return appearances, we have Ben Chisel, Director of Digital Product at Oak North. How are you today, Ben?
2: Good, but maybe not quite as good as David. <laughs> you haven't had a holiday yet. Not
3: yet. Two <laughs> weeks.
0: We're also joined by Hussein Kasai, CEO and co founder at Onfido. How are you today, Hussein?
3: Very well. It's good to be back. Thank you for coming back.
0: And making her new shade debut is Bailey Kasar, CEO and co founder of Toucan. How are you today, Bailey?
4: Hello. I'm very excited to be here. It feels like first step FinTech Insider, next step question time, I think. <laughs> well, it's great to have you with us. But for those of our listeners who are uncertain
0: what Toucan does or haven't heard of it before, could you give us like a you know two-minute synopsis?
4: Absolutely. So we're building a new kind of personal finance app focused on helping you develop great money habits. So we use everyday spending data to send timely alerts, relevant support. And the app's particularly relevant to people who struggle with numbers or might not be as confident managing money, which is about half of the UK adult population. Right now, we're piloting with people who want to tackle compulsive spending. And we're working with the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute on that through something called the Open Banking for Good programme with Nationwide Building Society. Yeah, lots of really exciting things we're working on. Brilliant, it is super exciting. If anybody
0: wants to know more about Bailey and can, then she did join us for an on air, so you can go and find that. So let's get started with today's news. So, story one is that N26 has moved out of beta and gone nationwide across the US. So, US residents can now download the app directly and apply for an N26 account and Visa debit card um, in just five minutes. The uh, N26 has partnered with FDIC, Insured pawn and card issuer Axos Bank in the US. The full-scale release also includes N26's peer-to-peer payment service Moneybean, which enables users to send payments directly to other N26 account holders um, if those account holders are in their smartphone contacts. Um, and each account also comes with spaces, which are sub-accounts that help N26 users organize and achieve their financial goals. Uh, So we spoke to US CEO of N26, Nicholas Kopp, to find out more. Let's hear from him now.
5: N26 is the first European challenge bank to launch in the United States. We started our beta program last July, where we onboarded people from our waitlist. The waitlist was over 100,000 people long onto our platform and have now successfully completed that beta program um, last week, actually 22nd of August, and have launched publicly in the U.S., where our checking account and debit card sponsored by Access Bank is now publicly available to customers uh, in the U.S. nationwide. And early user feedback that we've gotten from our beta program Rolls around people loving our cart design and generally the look and feel of the app. And some other feedback that we've gotten on the feature front is uh, people like our feature called Spaces, which is a way for you to create sub-accounts in real time uh, that will help you save and manage your money uh, from your phone directly with a few swipes. And another feature uh, that's quite popular here Uh, with N26 in the U.S. is uh, one where you get your paycheck two days early. This is some of the early feedback that we're getting uh, here in the U.S., and we're now very excited to continue building the program. We're getting a lot of feedback from our customers. We're improving the product, improving the platform, and are excited for what's to come over the coming weeks and months. Yeah, stay tuned. Follow us on N26.com.
4: Great. So guests in the room, what do we think of this? Yawn. <laughs> Don't we think that we've seen this before? I mean, there's some really cool stuff here, but Chime have been in the states since 2013, doing a lot of the same things with a focus on saving, with the two-day early depositing thing. So, I'm not sure what new things they're going to be bringing to the US market. What do other people think?
1: Yeah, I think I would agree with that. Actually, like you're seeing N26, the the model that it's sort of deployed is first percent, second percent of most innovative sort of early adopters. And actually those early adopters are probably already with Chime or somebody else in the space. So it's it really is going to be interesting to see actually if their model for going to market is actually going to work in the US at all, really. And I, I guess that's up against Monto going to market, mm-hmm. Revolut going to market. You know, there's actually a lot of competition out there, isn't
4: there? Yeah, loads.
1: On the positive side, it's good to see more and more European companies
3: break into the US and do well. And as you say, there are quite a few of them now, which is a hopefully a early sign of things to come.
1: Hmm. I think N26 have, have made more of being there, you know, they they sort of announced maybe 18 months ago, didn't they, in terms of a presence? And I know Nick and a bunch of the other team have been out there in New York for, for quite a lot of time. So maybe, you know, the model of establishing community and sort of building up and being sort of part of the scene for a while might be able to almost emulates more of the stuff that happened here from a uh, Old Street roundabout type of vibe. I mean, it's going to be fascinating to see if they can get the similar level of adoption as they have in other countries. But I guess, you know the fight will will come to to bear pretty quickly, won't it?
0: I think it's interesting as well because N26 hasn't necessarily had the best success expanding outside of its home market. So if you look at what happened when N26 came to the UK, I think it's fair to say it stumbled a bit, you know, has quite uh, widely reported mistakes or sort of poorly judged advertising campaign when it got here. Even N26 themselves has said that, you know, the advertising campaigns that they used in Germany, they tried to use in France and people were confused. They tried to use them in England and people thought they were slightly rude. Um, So I wonder if... Uh, they've done anything different for the US launch? you know what they did when they expanded across Europe? And if so, what that is that's going to help them sort of prevent those mistakes? Because Going to the US and, you know, signing up with this partner to ensure they can issue their own cards is is, is a huge investment. So they want to make sure that they're getting it right. Uh, This isn't kind of like a stepping stone or, or, you know,
4: a a light start. Mm. Have you seen the ads that they've been running in the States? I haven't, no. Yeah, they've done a very similar out-of-home campaign to what they did here in London with the same kind of um, messaging. Yeah, I read about it in the drum. So it's called the Loved By campaign. Loved For, sorry. And, yeah, they've got some very typical millennial bank messaging. So there's one that's about transparency. There's one that's about this two-day early payday thing. Um, But to my taste, the images are kind of old-fashioned. And the messaging doesn't really have anything different or new about it which is is disappointing but yeah definitely don't want to i'm sure they're doing some really cool things and they're european companies so we should definitely
1: be behind them it's going to be interesting generally isn't it to see whether the u.s audience take you know to your point actually will they take to european fintechs kind of coming into this space you know generally i'm not sure the u.s likes things that aren't made in the u.s as it were so you know actually uh um not even just a UK but you know European uh, less connectivity there in terms of sort of the customer base liking that type of stuff it's i mean it's going to be fascinating to see it, isn't it like you say it's very, so the US is our largest market and
3: it has been a journey essentially <laughs> to have US companies appreciate like the quality of companies coming out of Europe but it's now our largest market and there is definitely a need to localize but it is a much larger market than you kind of get elsewhere. So if you crack the US, you've done very well. I also think it proves a shift in thinking as far as consumers are concerned. Historically, 20 years ago, when you looked at who you want to bank with, you'd looked at the assets they have, how stable are they, and a range of other things. The smartphone generation now, all they're really interested often is, does it have a good user experience? Can I sign up? And hey, when I travel, when I backpack, is it going to give me a decent rate? And things like that. So it's not just... Obviously, there are a few challenger banks in the US already, but there are very many mainstream banks. For me, it's a sign of things changing and that even the mainstream banks aren't able to capitalize on giving that strong customer experience, whereas these online banks and challengers from Europe are.
0: I think it's definitely going to be one to watch. I think we'll wait and see what happens, perhaps as the others join them. You know, Monzo and Revolut, as we said, have have expressed their interest. So um, we will definitely be keeping a close eye on that. So the next story is that a fintech called Numbers has joined the Fintech Unicorn Club. So, the Swiss headquartered Numbers Personal Finance has joined the Unicorn Club, raising $40 million from private investors in its latest funding round, taking its valuation to over $1 billion. Numbers offers account aggregation app and provides users with the opportunity to apply for bank accounts, credit cards, loans, and insurance from directly within their app. Those products come from a panel of banks and insurers, and it's currently operating in Germany, so headquartered in Switzerland, but it's live to customers in Germany. The company now claims over 2 million downloads and in excess of 10 billion euro in managed assets. Uh, we were just discussing it, but I think the total capital raised so far is more than $200 million. Which, if you add those numbers together, it's I, I think that's quite a a different way of going about becoming a unicorn than we've maybe seen elsewhere.
1: Mm, yeah, I mean, on the article, actually, the CEO says rather than venture capitalists who insist on fast returns, we decided to go for uh, more private investors. So, like say, having raised a hundred and sixty million dollars through I mean, it's not exactly angel investors been looking at people like Card, Post Bank, Santander, Bank of Scotland, etc. You know, it's a very... Different way of going about raising some money, isn't it? I, and I feel—I mean, I've always said the minute that you, you start sort of giving away money to VCs, essentially you're losing control of your boardroom.
0: I may be wrong here. I'm sure someone else around the table knows this, but didn't Starling raise a lot of its money from one private investor as well? I feel like his name maybe was like Harold McPike or something.
1: <laughs> um, it, it was Harold Pike. Okay, yeah. oh, that was close. a nice Bahrainian. No, not Bahrainian. No, Bahaman man, wasn't he? Um, uh, but, but
0: was that—is that the same thing that it's like one sort of private?
1: Um, no, I think this, this way, so they've they've actually uh, um, raised a bunch of money from different companies, haven't they, rather than one individual, right. uh, I understand. I think it's amazing that these guys have got to this size with being quite under the radar to a certain degree as well, because I'll be honest, I don't know a great deal about them, do you?
0: What, what does it say about Switzerland as well, whilst we're on the subject?
1: <laughs> lots, the Swiss of, lots of money?
0: Yeah. yeah. Sorry, does anybody know more about this company?
4: No, yeah, I hadn't heard of them before I saw this story, to be honest. And that says um, a lot.
0: I mean, it says a lot in two different ways, doesn't it? So, you know, they're in Germany and they've said with this money, their next market will be the UK. It looks like what they're offering is quite similar to Yolt. So do we think, do you agree with that or have you guys seen something that makes them stand out?
2: I mean, it, it looks similar, but I mean, the question for me always comes back to what are they actually doing kind of 10 times better than everyone else to actually stand out from the crowd and actually... It feels like there's a lot of kind of just doing the same as what everyone else is because they want to as a company. But what are they actually doing for, for customers that's going to make them stand out and actually make people want to use their product? And I'm I'm not really that sure.
3: I'm not too familiar with them specifically, but I've come across them a couple of times. I do like the model. I think all of us in the next few years, we will have four or five apps that we continuously engage with that gets the majority of our mind share. We already have like a social media one, a messaging one. I believe strongly there will be a financial one that aggregates all your accounts that you're going to go to it for one, use it for all of these different pieces and getting all the information. So some of the banks are also trying to become these aggregators. They seem to be doing a good job. So I am looking forward to seeing how well they do.
0: I think what's interesting to me as well will be this idea that from within numbers, I can apply for a new bank account, a new credit card, loan, insurance. I want to know how that journey works and how easy it is to do that. Because a number of people have that on their roadmaps or, or say they already offer it. But in some circumstances, I'm thinking of some of, um, to go back to Starling, but some of their early marketplace integrations are actually taken out of the Starling app to a second app or a mobile website to apply for it and that, that is perhaps not the best journey it could be I know that there are technological and, and actually legal limitations at the moment of how you do that but for me I think that will be the key to, to your point in saying that the app that succeeds will be the one that makes it as easy as possible for me to move things around, apply for a new one you know switch my insurance
3: without having to spend all that time on the phone and you know trying to find new quotes or whatever. So that's not happened yet an easy within one app experience but there's a lot of work on that, we're heavily involved, there's FCA sandbox ongoing right now with banks and others involved to ultimately give you that one click opening an account access. We're a few months away, but yeah, definitely there's a lot of demand for it.
0: And I think it's interesting the markets they've chosen, because when you say fintech, Germany doesn't always spring to the front of your mind, but then neither does Switzerland. So I wonder if they decided to go Germany first because there's not a lot of activity there. They haven't got a lot of competition there, so they can try a lot of things.
1: Well, N26 are too busy over in the US now, aren't they? So they can, <laughs> uh, you know, capitalize on that maybe.
0: And I don't think N26 does aggregation yet in Germany.
1: She's just looking around the
0: table. Normally it's that point. Somebody corrects me. Yeah, I think I think another one to watch, I think... Swiss fintech and German fintech are also two markets that I have probably not kept a close enough eye on myself and should be keeping a closer eye on in the future, especially if there's this much money in that market.
1: I mean, last probably about three years ago now, there, were a bun- there was a kind of a explosion of accelerators out there which is usually like the early signs of, of kind of changes sort of coming through. I think Kickstarter being one of the, the sort of first ones of those in terms of sort of getting it going. So, I mean, maybe it's a three-year lag. You know, we had level 39 here in, what, 20 20- 11.
0: I'm going to say yes, because I don't know the answer.
1: And then actually, I guess maybe two, three year lag until we really started seeing stuff in the market. So maybe it makes sense.
0: All right. We'll, we'll be watching closely. Our third story today is about Revolut's new hires. So you could say from one European unicorn to another. So Revolut has hired a new treasurer, a new deputy chief financial officer, and a director of financial crime risk. Wow, those are some snappy titles. Wolfgang Bardor. I may be saying that wrong, I apologise if I am, uh, is the new treasurer. He has joined from Deutsche Bank. Stefan Weil, again, apologies if I pronounced that wrong, is the new deputy chief financial officer. And he is uh, was formerly senior vice president of Finance N26 and corporate finance manager at Credit Suisse, presumably before that. And then the third new member of staff is Philip Doyle, director of Financial Crime Risk. Um, he's the former head of financial crime at ClearBank and fraud prevention manager at Visa. So these are these are just the latest in a series of names or hires that Revolut has made. They're a uh, senior executives that Revolut perhaps hasn't had before, um, and the these people's careers. Um, Have previously, they've done a lot of work at big banks, so they're the kind of like big guns, if you like. Also recently hired are Richard Davis, um, who was previously in senior leadership at HSBC, Barclays and TSB. Dave McLean, the former finance director at Metrobank. So he's the new chief financial officer at Revolut. There's a lot of names and titles in there. But I guess, you know, what do we think about this? Is there a particular motivation for Revolut doing it this way? Or do you think they're at the point in their, their development where they need some of these, you know, they need more, more
1: weight at the top? I'd say, first impression, that's a hell of a team they're kind of putting together. You know, like they're clearly going on a bit of a shopping spree to kind of pull in some pretty amazing talent. Secondly, there isn't a lady in any of those.
0: I was going to say something and then I thought I wouldn't. I'd just open it to the floor.
1: Well, I mean, it just seems... I mean, maybe they're just not in the mix of uh, everybody else in the the mix of the executive team, but actually that's consistently, I guess, guys in that team.
0: You know, we have seen that. It's difficult because we, we have we have seen Revolut struggle with diversity. We've also seen a lot of other fintechs struggle with diversity. So, you know, it wouldn't be fair to just throw the accusation at them. And also, as you say, you know, if, if we're looking at senior executives in banks and it looks like that's what Revolut wants to hire – that there aren't as many women out there.
1: I'd say in terms of the quality of the people they're bringing in, though, that's an insane team, isn't it? You know, like say, getting people like Richard to come in as COO and then peppering talent, some of which have got amazing names. Wolfgang Bardor. That is amazing. <laughs> like... Sounds like a whiskey.
0: Yeah, well, I hope there is a whiskey. I hope he, I hope he starts a whiskey now. I want, I want a share of that if he does that. But what's interesting to me as well is if you look at a couple of these names. So um, they're not just big banks, but you've got somebody coming from N26 and somebody coming from Clearbank. So not only have they got the big bank experience, but they've also got the challenger experience, which will be interesting. As you know, N, um, N26 no. establishes itself you know in amongst those players
1: i think particularly really sort of gearing up for talent in the so they've already sort of come out and said that they're going to go after an ipo right so actually they've got cfo from metro bank and now a treasurer from deutsche bank and a deputy cfo from n26 like they're bringing in some just amazing talent in that side of things both for i guess you know positioning from an ipo perspective but also further fundraising i guess
4: yeah, I think this is the right move, like bringing in new people. Clearly, they had some issues that were reported earlier this year. I think my take on it, though, would be that from the stories that came out early this year, it seems like the core issue is the culture at the company and bringing in people from traditional banking backgrounds, all of which have you know great backgrounds, but maybe from a very, like, corporate culture might not necessarily be the way to um, increase you know transparency and and have a have a thriving culture that is what I think was the part of the some of the issues with Revolute yeah and and the fact that they all come from that same background is interesting
1: Mm. I I think it's interesting I, I always sort of say I learned way more from terrible cultures than I did from great ones so like sometimes a horrendous banking background might be good for somebody to sort of learn what you'd want it not to be essentially you know my my experience in big banks or big management consultancies are usually like learn the thing you don't want it to be if that makes sense
4: yeah that's true and they've done incredibly well given their culture problems to build the product that they've got right now yeah. right but i just think the issue that they've had with fraud um i can't remember exactly what what the details were, but, from reading into it, I, I feel like that was also a culture issue at the heart. So mm. how can they, they tip the balance? Is it by bringing in lots of people in suits? I'm not sure.
3: Yeah, it is a bit of an endorsement because individuals of, of that caliber tend to be very selective and they would have done their homework and they would have been sold on the vision. So it is whenever you kind of find, at least what I would look at more is, is less what money has been raised or or anything else as a metric, but who has decided to join them so it is uh, for me a positive sign
0: yeah i think i think for me the most positive element is the the fact that two of these people have spent time at the challenger banks um, neither of whom have as far as i'm aware the reported cultural issues that that you've spoken about there bailey so they've both of those companies have built big brands that are widely known without hitting maybe some of the same stumbling blocks. I'm sure they hit other stumbling blocks, but hopefully there's there's some injection there of this is how you can scale and overcome those problems.
1: Perversely, I, I think of all of the, you know, sort of retail challenger banks, I think I'd put money on Revolut being more successful in the US than I would the other ones. Jessica, I think they've got this relentless pursuit of delivery that actually, I think we're almost sort of seeing a bit of a waning in with some of the other ones right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, things like, if Revolut can find a way to offer their crypto services in the States without falling foul of one of the gazillion regulators they have out there, then that will be a surefire win. But I have I have no idea how they
4: might go about doing that. They've been promising to go to the States for years, like three years, four years. I remember them uh, saying in New York that they were going to launch imminently. Yeah. And Monzo have beat them to it. So my money would be on Monzo personally.
2: I think Revolut seem to be a lot more humble these days than they used to be. And I think this is kind of a a signal of them saying actually you know what there are some things that we haven't done before and some things where there are some lessons we know we're going to learn and rather than just learn them the hard way we're going to bring in some people who maybe have learned those things before so actually in theory this is the type of move that could actually help them move even faster
0: well, let's let's hope it all works out for the best for, for both the new joiners and for the company as a whole. On to the next story. Speaking of Deutsche Bank, this is a less positive story. Deutsche Bank has been fined $16 million over US corruption charges. So Deutsche Bank settled for more than 16 million with US authorities amid charges it had hired the relatives of foreign officials to win business. Yeah. Oh dear. The uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, one of the big regulators in the States, said that it defined the bank for hiring poorly qualified people just to get close to their decision-making relatives. Under the settlement's terms, Deutsche did not admit any wrongdoing over the charges. I think it just handed over the money. Uh, Deutsche Bank provided substantial cooperation to the SEC in its inquiry and has implemented numerous remedial measures to improve the bank's hiring processes, apparently. I don't know. I feel like I've just read something from like the Medici's in the 16th century. <laughs> Anybody else have thoughts on this one?
1: Yeah, it definitely sounds sort of… U.S. soap opera type vibe, doesn't it? But sixty million for this doesn't actually seem like a lot of money, does it? Really, you know, given the the sort of level of, um, I guess, wrongdoing they're being accused of, of doing. It, albeit to your point that they didn't actually admit that they'd done anything wrong. But I don't know if you just hand over sixty million pounds without saying I did something wrong. That seems sort of weird, as in itself, doesn't it?
0: I don't know if that's quite American in culture, because a lot of things are settled in America, aren't there? So a lot of people go, we could take it to court. or A lot of people get sued, but it never actually ends up in front of a judge because they're like, actually, let's just agree to disagree and like... Oh, we'll pay
1: you off, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Anybody else have thoughts on this one? I'm not sure I've read a charge like this recently for... for, I mean, there's many, many bank fines out there. I'm not sure I've read a charge like this.
3: It's not a good sign on corruption because it's on the rise. And it is a shame because a large reason why certain countries are prosperous is because corruption has been under control. And it is equally a bad sign that people, I guess, presumably are hired. And at some point they are told that, you know, we have these expectations of you to help maybe us win other deals. But it is a real shame. And in places like China, you wouldn't have this kind of corruption. They treat it a lot more harshly. For me, it's not the number of the fine because the managers who decided this, they're not going to be paying the fines. So if you were to personally find them or take more serious measures to ensure that they all realize there are real repercussions for being corrupt, hopefully this could come uh, under control a bit more.
1: I think, I think the thing there is though, it must be coming from the top to a certain degree, right? This is not something you would think, given that it's a number of individuals, it's not just a singular, somebody didn't just hire somebody's husband to get to close to somebody's, you know, wife senior at somewhere. That sounds like it's more of a strategic thing. Cause if you kind of look the in the article, actually, it says about a similar fine for JP Morgan was 264 million. A similar fine for Credit Suisse was 77 million. So it's interesting that maybe they, Like, how did they prove this? Like, did they go, no, that person's clearly just not capable of doing that job you've hired them for? Like, it seems like a strange... A strange thing to prove, right?
0: The, the other element that, that points to corruption as well is that Deutsche was accused of keeping false books and records to cover up dodgy hiring, so putting, like, false fronts on who it had hired and why. Oh. Once that's found, it's very hard to extricate yourself from... So saying, oh, I didn't know, Gov, like, I didn't know he was that person's brother or that person's second cousin twice removed's uncles, whatever. If you've actually then got false records in front of you, it, it kind of
3: mm-hmm.
0: slams home the guilt a little bit. It
1: does a little bit, yeah. I mean, they lose their treasurer to Revolut and then now they've lost uh, $16 million as well. But the amount doesn't matter. Even if it were $160 million, the
3: profits here are into the billions. No one is going to lose sleep over this. The question is, okay, we've been caught again, let's send in our lawyers, they'll negotiate the lowest possible amount and then on to the next thing. Whereas this isn't going to go away and it's going to just get worse until there's serious personal repercussions for being corrupt. I mean, in any other industry... You kind of know industries as big as they are, and it, it, others are a lot more careful not to be corrupt. So how are we okay with financial services that underpin so much of the society and economy that we live in really get away with it as though it's not a big deal?
1: Completely, yeah. No, I think personal liability and banking definitely is high on the agenda, I think, for a lot of people kind of bringing those things back. Because it's uh, people kind of completely advocate themselves from... Actually, any impact of their decision making in any way, shape, or form, which is pretty terrible, isn't it? You know, I, I think the only way that these things can ever really be impactful in a meaningful way is if the media covered it to such a high degree that people start moving away from Deutsche Bank.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you on that front, um, but I also think that there might be an awful. Maybe I'm just very cynical, but I think there will be quite a few people out there who wouldn't be surprised, you know, to hear that big big banks did this kind of
3: thing. Yeah, and move away from Deutsche Bank and go where? They're kind of as you were saying earlier. They're not the only ones, right? These kind of corruption uh, issues, the same practices are amongst many. It's just a case of who gets caught first. And another question is, well, the conversations will be at a competitor of theirs. Well, everyone else is doing it. If we don't, we're going to fall back, kind of thing. That's unfortunately.
1: True. Well, I guess in this podcast so far, we've had they can move to N twenty six for a retail current account, and they can move to numbers for a PFM, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean there are options out there, people. There's um, some interesting stuff. Apparently, there are some internal emails at Deutsche Bank which have kind of like come to the fore. Which, which speak about this and moan about the state of affairs. And that very much suggests, as we've said, that it was a top-down sanctioned thing. So, you know, I mean, I can imagine, and actually we're talking about, you know, accountability here, but also if you are somebody who has worked really, really hard to prove yourself and to prove your skills and be good at what you do within a bank with the hope of, you know, getting promoted and promoted and promoted, and then somebody else who has no skills whatsoever and just happens to be somebody's brother gets promoted in above you. What's that gonna to do to the rest of your culture as well? So there's the the cultural point about the senior managers thinking it's okay to hire these people just because of who they know or who they're related to. And then you've got the the sort of the knock-on impact, if you like, of the rest of the people who make up the bulk of your employees who are like, well why am I even going to try then? Because I can be as good as I like and it will still be, you know, Hussein's cousin who gets the job, whether he's got the qualifications or not.
1: I guess. Tell the Collinson brothers that, I guess, right? You know. <laughs> I
0: I don't know. Didn't they go into it together? Yeah, I guess. So, yeah, yeah, I think that true. they were both <laughs> there at the start. I th- I think I think related founders, because there are enough the number of husband and wife founding teams, I think we can we can leave them out of this for You this mean sort
1: of I can't arbitrarily just give my son Josh a job in like five years' time? I mean he's seven, so like <laughs> I was gonna say yeah. that would
0: make him thirteen. Yeah. That would be illegal. May-
1: yeah, maybe not cool. Let's All not right. do that.
0: Now we've agreed not to hire David's children, let's take a quick break.
4: This deal sets
1: that apart. That this
5: economy okay. is... We need to, to get down yeah. to
0: business.
5: To
1: yeah. Clearly the pressure We're
0: is beginning. Brexit. Business investment. Jobs. I'm going to come. I'm
1: going to come. i Brexit. Brexit. New. Brexit. The more you hear about Brexit, the less clear it all becomes.
3: Brexit. When everyone else is shouting. Listen. For the clarity behind the headlines, subscribe to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com. Today,
2: customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation, and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation, and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision, to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra.
4: Cybos, the world's premier financial services event, is landing in London's XL on the 23rd to the 26th of September. More than 8,000 decision-makers and experts from across the globe will gather to shape the future of finance and the opportunities for fintechs will be bigger than ever. Specially priced fintech tickets are available. Don't miss out. Book today at cyboss.com.
0: Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. So if you love the show, don't forget to pass the podcast along, tell a friend, and spread the fintech love. And if you're a regular listener, please, please do leave us a review. It only takes a minute, and it really helps other people to find us. All right, let's get on with the show. So our next story is the meeting of two marketplaces. So Raisin has acquired FAIR, lowercase f, two r's at the end. Right, now we've got through that. Raisin has acquired the fellow German fintech FAIR, which provides investment products for retirement savings. So through the acquisition, Raisin's nearly 200,000 customers will have single site access to a wide range of savings, investment and pension products from FAIR. FAIR apparently aligns customers' personal retirement goals in real time with their combined pots from state, corporate and private retirement savings, and then offers them a range of ETF investment products, which are managed through like a personal financial dashboard. They call it a cockpit, but I think the more common term in England would probably be dashboard. The acquisition follows a recent $25 million capital and for Raisin, which came from Goldman Sachs or partly from Goldman Sachs. And it's the second takeover for Raisin this year after it bought out its banking partner, MHB Bank. So it's positioned as a service provider for fintech startups. MHB will operate under the new moniker Raisin Bank. So I think what we're seeing here is Raisin doing a lot of acquisitions and getting a lot of fingers into different pies. What do we think about this one?
1: I mean, the minute we start seeing fintechs buying other fintechs, that's got to be a sign of maturity in the market to a certain degree. You know, we've seen, what, 300 years of mergers and acquisitions between big banks making even bigger banks. So is this just maybe the sign of the this part of the cycle that we're in?
0: I think to a certain extent, yes, that's true. I also have a lot of love for Raisin because when a lot of other people were doing lots of stuff with current accounts and, you know, aggregation, Raisin went, no, we're going to go down the savings route. Now, I think this may well be inspired by the fact that they are German and the Germans do like to save rather than invest. Like that's just a a cultural thing. But Raisin have done very, very well um, in both their home market and they came over to the UK. And what they're doing is building out what I think are a very complementary set of products to that because savings is one thing but then, if you add retirement specific products and let's be honest the retirement industry really needs shaking up um, you're starting to build out something that you can get somebody in at sort of I don't know a younger age with the idea of savings and then introduce them to this idea of things they can do that are perhaps more complicated or more clever for for when they retire because let's face it guys when we retire in the UK there probably won't be a state pension (laughs) I think the same is probably true all over Europe people are underprepared for their retirement
1: very True, yeah. I think anything that you say that breaks that down, makes it simpler, moves people towards that is probably a good thing to do. But I think it's in a world where everybody has a thousand things to do, retirement is probably one of the things everybody thinks they should, but nobody's really doing anything for. Mm. And in some ways you can follow the trends, it's be it wealth front
3: or betterment, they're hugely popular. And like you were saying, in the future, or generally there seems to be a bit of a breakdown in trust, you know, 30 years ago an average worker could trust that their pension would be safe, it'd give them a decent return, They'd retire and it's all good. But um, there seems to be less trust now, for good reason. And so people want to take more ownership and control over their future, which is a good sign, especially as tools such as these uh, simplify that process.
2: Yeah, I think that it's another indicator where they're actually trying to pick a problem that really needs solving and really focus on trying to do a better job than anyone else, rather than just doing something for the sake of it and just trying to you know, aggregate things together that don't really belong together or launch in a new market where the product isn't necessarily better than the incumbents. And so I think it's a nice sign that actually they're focusing on on another complementary problem and actually just focusing on trying to do that better than anyone else as well.
3: Strategically it also unpicks the traditional assumption and just pick one thing and only focus on that. I mean how many examples do we have of the banks even that we mentioned earlier, the online banks they started with one thing and then adding more and more services. So in this example, again, going and branching out to other services is interesting because they've unbundled what a bank does. They've focused on one, they've done it very well, and now they are capitalizing on that by expanding into other services. So it runs counter to what the theory around strategy has been in the last 10 years, pick one thing and focus. And their approach is, let's delight the customer, gain their trust, and there's potentially no end of what other services we may be able to offer them.
1: I think the good thing that they have picked, though, is the place where you can create a relationship. You know essentially, they've established a relationship and trust with a consumer. And now this is a, a sort of a natural extension of that, isn't it? I think similar to I mean Monzo, you know Monzo created a trusted relationship. Now, when it comes with marketplace banking for pretty much any product, if it's contextual and relevant to a consumer in the way that they've created that relationship, they've almost earned the permission which is actually i guess the inverse of what's happening in many big high street banks is the permission the trust is sort of ebbing and ebbing and ebbing away so yeah i think it it makes a lot of sense i still think it's just amazing we're seeing fintechs sort of eat each other now you know like it feels like two seconds ago like this market didn't exist and now you've got big organizations buying big organizations to sort of take more and more features to the market it does to your point around unbundling are we seeing that sort of rebundling through our acquisition, because essentially we saw monoline credit cards, we saw monoline savings accounts in, what, like late 80s, mid 90s. You're all looking at me blankly because you're all (laughs) really young. Um, (laughs) I
0: I know what you mean. I I do see the point as well. I I think it's kind of a, a natural point you reach in a market as it matures is the consolidation. And when you get to consolidation, some will form by the wayside, some will stand out on their own, some will acquire others and some will be acquired. Those are just kind of like the four things that will happen when a market reaches
1: that kind of size. We haven't seen many out and out failures yet, have we? They usually go out quietly. <laughs> I, was, I was just thinking about Loot
0: was the one that came to mind from most recently, in, and that was operating in the current account market. Now, I know there were different circumstances around Loot than perhaps there were to some of the other fintechs, but just if you point to, I would say, the startup or the challenger bank account market, where you're talking about banks or like people who are operating as banks, I'd say that's a very crowded market in the UK, and I'd say Loot is probably one casualty of a few more we're probably going to see. For me, I'm just excited that retirement savings are, are, are getting some kind of, you know, attention, some love. I think also the fact that they mention, you know, it's retirement and investment at the same time, because I said this a, a few times, I think too many people don't realize that their pension is an investment. They don't realize that their pension can go up or, a, and down. Their pension is not kind of set. It's not just putting their money away every month. So if what Raisin are going to do is help people understand that that's how retirement saving works and that, you know, you should spread the money you're putting aside for your retirement a, Cross various things to make sure you've got enough and prevent against you know things going wrong. I think that's good. Sorry, Bailey.
4: No, yeah, I was just going to agree. Really, I oh. think retirement, <laughs> retirement and pensions do for a massive shake up. So the latest financial capability survey came out that said fifty five percent of UK adults actually like are completely confused by pensions and they don't feel empowered to actually plan for retirement. And that's because it's a really opaque industry. You don't really know what's happening with your pension. You don't necessarily feel like it's an investment, to your point. And I also think there's going to be lots of opportunities for people when they wake up to that to do things like invest more ethically, which is a huge area that people aren't really uh, switched on
3: to at the moment. Just one other quick point that is interesting. At times, some banks are suggesting that these online neobanks are a short-term fad. They're just used by sort of students and they're just used on the weekends. Uh, Whereas this is a perfect example of, no, people are using it for a range of different services and thinking long-term. And naturally, if you're signing up to this kind of product, you're going to be on it for tens of years, potentially, which is a good sign that this trend is here to stay. And that earlier points around what the consumers expect from their providers and what does trust fundamentally mean is going to continue to be interesting to observe. Yeah, I really
1: agree. I think did you say forty five percent? Fifty
4: five. Fifty
1: five. So yeah. basically, the other forty five percent were lying then, because like they, they really <laughs> understand it, because that's just not the case, is it? Like, I think probably less than five percent. I would have thought actually really really understand how pensions work, how investing works. Like, I used to work at Aviva back in the day, and actually the amount of people you went and talked to about actually how pensions work and how annuities are, and you know saving for the long term and what that does in short, and, and actually you know even just down to are you better off paying off debt or are you better saving for and investing in the future? All of these things that are made so opaque by providers to make better returns on the things that they're doing, it just makes it such a confusing landscape for people. So- yeah,
4: I totally agree. Financial capability, there's a massive crisis in the UK. It's really sad. I think the power of something like Raisin, though, for me, is what could happen in the future. So at the moment, they're developing their relationship directly to consumers, but In the future, any number of partnerships could happen where automated switching between savings account can optimise what the return is for the consumer, and that's great. They do have a white-label platform in the background
0: as well, so I think they're definitely thinking, I I don't know exactly what it does, but I know that they do have white-label offerings as well, so I think that they are absolutely thinking along that, you know, how do we spread this wider than just ours?
1: The game of that will change so dramatically, because if you kind of think how universal banking sort of principles of like cross-sell and upsell, people kind of have a single product and then they sell them another product and blah, 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 And actually, like, the economics of that is usually sort of nested, meaning that actually people price into people holding more than one product to to make it economically viable to actually create those products in the first place. Actually, at the point where you're doing kind of automated switching, people are going to have to start pricing each individual product to be profitable in its own right, which actually, I think, perversely, will lead to more expensive individual products, which is weird, isn't it? You know, we're going to, by having more control, arguably, we could end up having more expensive banking and insurance products if we sort of measure them all as individual things. Because essentially when you take a bank's direct Uh, communication with their customers away, they have to price everything individually, if that makes sense, yeah, which is just going to be so weird. You know, perversely, competition and new distribution models might lead to really, really different pricing models for for kind of banking products.
4: Yeah, I totally agree. I think the one thing that I'd say, though, is that switching can really help with this financial capability problem because you don't need to know about the market. You don't need to know all of the the issues. Completely
3: agree. And I agree completely, but hopefully that may accelerate the move towards the new Tech providers, in the sense that if you rely on your bank for 10 services, and then new tech companies come and start unbundling that and offering better service, at, and you take the three or four most profitable ones away, and the bank is only left with six, if they therefore have to increase their fees and fines and a range of other things, that's probably going to drive you more to continue to take your other six services with your mainstream bank to other providers too. It will accelerate the move away from the mainstream.
1: Yeah, I think it's really going to accelerate big traditional incumbent organizations' pressure to fundamentally change what their operational structure is because if you can't switch your opex to compete, you know, Tom at Monzo's come out and said it's what 7 or 8 pounds to run a current account and it's, you know, 200 to 250 for some of the big high street organizations. Actually, if they can't change that OPEX model, they're going to just die a very slow, we've got more money than you death, basically.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I think it, there's a lot to be taken from that story. And there's a lot of different things we can keep an eye on. The business models is certainly one that I am very much interested in. The next story is, is your really sad story. A woman's bank sent her safe house address to her abusive ex. So this story came from the BBC. A lady called Claire, that's not her real name, left her husband after both physical and psychological abuse that also stretched economic abuse. After a bad assault, this lady decided to leave the relationship. While staying at a safe house, uh, she received a letter automatically sent from her bank, but it stated both her husband's address and the address of her safe house. So the bank had basically told her violent abuser where she was living and put her physical safety at risk. After this had happened, the lady went with the police to collect her possessions from the house, but he had destroyed or taken anything that could prove her identity. So she was unable to basically access any money. She, a few weeks later, when she finally got access to her bank accounts, uh, she found out that tens of thousands of pounds had been withdrawn from their joint account, um, but the bank branches couldn't help her because she had no ID and insisted that her husband, the violent, abusive husband, had to accompany her to prove who she was or direct debits from their joint accounts needed two signatures. So, for those of you outside the UK, we have a bill that just entered Parliament last month called the Domestic Abuse Bill. Um, It determines economic abuse as behaviour that has substantially adverse effect on another person's ability to acquire, use or maintain money or other property. It's something that's going through Parliament, isn't law yet, but the the point being people understand it. Aside from the fact that that's a very, very sad story, it goes to show, I think, that some of this, you know processes and, you know, bank automation and computer says no can have a real detriment to people's lives. I don't know if anybody else has. I'm sure everybody around the table agrees with me on the general sentiment, but um, let's focus on the fact that, you know, what could the bank have done better here? What could the bank have done differently? And how will maybe the new breed of banks Try and you know avoid this kind of situation. I mean, my personal hope is that a lot of the new breed of banks—I I know for a fact—Monzo thinks about it when they're designing products. How could we avoid these situations? That they, they they have them in mind when they design processes. But anything else? Do we think that how how could this be avoided? How can we can we stop this kind of thing happening?
1: Um, obviously, super super terrible. I'm surprised the bank isn't named. I think within the article it sort of goes on to uh, list out examples of procedures that TSB, Santander, HSBC, and NetWest have. So I'm not wanting to kind of by a course of deduction presume that it's one of the other ones. But you know, it's just a yeah, it's a very, very strange sort of
4: Yeah, I wouldn't presume that.
1: Mm.
0: On a much less serious note, we definitely have breakdowns between bank staff, branch staff, social media staff, customer support staff, understanding what the processes are and what they can and can't do. So I think, you know, whilst HSBC or any of those banks may have policies, whether the branch staff know those or understand them is, a, is another question as yeah, well. Yeah, that's
4: definitely true. So unfortunately, this isn't a story that is a unique story. This happens every day and banks have to deal with it in lots of different ways The charity Surviving Economic Abuse is the one, I think, that that gave the story to the BBC just to highlight some of these issues in terms of financial services. And the good thing is that banks are putting in place, maybe because of government pressure, uh, some some things around uh, how they can tackle this. So Lloyd's this week, I know, um, launched a specialist support team, which involves having a helpline that people can call. For domestic abuse specifically specifically domestic abuse. And then also they have, which wasn't possible before, allowed people to be removed from joint accounts when it's shown that the partner is is abusive, which is amazing because a lot of this abuse takes place with the joint account. Yeah. And I think there's a couple of things to think about here. You know, One, to your point, how can banks improve the processes and the training in order for staff to know what to do in these circumstances? Um, Some of that does... Involve design, so you mentioned kind of how Monzo might think about it. We think about it at Two Can Two because we work with vulnerable customers. We start with not just thinking about the customer persona, but also what we call asshole personas, which you is, say arsehole
1: personas.
2: Yeah, nice.
4: It's a thing. Yeah, yeah you can Google yeah. it, uh, and it's basically just thinking like, how on earth could someone out there? misuse this product. What, what could they do in order to um, abuse someone or do something that's very negative um, with this product? And it's really important when you're thinking about these vulnerable customers, and it's, I don't think it's thought about enough. Um, Hussain, did you want to add something on that?
3: Well, the bizarre thing here is that even if Claire were to take a utility bill to her local bank branch, that could be so easily faked. So everyone's being blocked from access in so many different use cases, and yet when they are using paper-based verification means... It's so easy to cheat uh, from what a fraudster does. And so obviously being from an identity verification company, we see identity as broken and getting worse. And in the long term, what we're looking to do is empower everyone to own and control their identity so that ultimately you're not going to struggle if someone decides to steal your passport or driving license or other means of you proving you are who you claim to be.
0: Yeah, I mean, the ideal, I suppose, at the moment, though technology will change, particularly as you know, cyber criminals become more advanced, is going and putting my thumbprint down. So I've had similar experience, not to Claire, but try, going into a bank and trying to prove who I am and them saying, you know, you need your passport and your driving license and a bill. And I'm going, oh, for God's
2: sake... One of the that kind of springs to mind from some past examples of things that I've worked on is actually this is one thing where diversity in an organization actually also really helps. I think that when collectively as a team you're building products and you're designing them with the customer in mind and you're testing them with real people, diversity around and diversity of opinion is kind of really helps to um, make sure that you think through things as thoroughly as possible. Because I imagine, I mean this is not something that was deliberate by design, right? This is something that some someone just hadn't thought about, a potential use case for the the arsehole persona. And so, so actually to give yourself the best chance, you need to make sure that you're getting feedback from a broad range of people. And unfortunately with financial services, that range is huge. So you need to find a way that you can solicit feedback from that number of people. And so I think that's actually why things like diversity in or, inside an organization, a community, these things really help test your product before these kind of soul personas actually get hold of it and use it in the you know kind of in the real world
0: yeah I, I 100% agree I talk about this all the time it's not necessarily about diversity of you know of, of skin colour or gender it's diversity of experience and, and thought did you want to add something to that Bailey?
4: yeah no I was just going to add to what Hussein was talking about in terms of identity of verification and how people uh, might not need these letters in the future i mean letters are really problematic in lots of different ways i've been at a bank today that i won't name that uses letters in order to nudge their customers towards better habits you know uh, but a letter often particularly with customers who are you know in financial difficulty are ignored they don't get opened they don't get read People don't necessarily want to communicate via letter, but then you've also got issues around addresses. It doesn't need to be something like this where you've got the two addresses on a joint account. We had a an interview when we were doing research with someone with learning uh, difficulties who had had a letter delivered to their um, shared flat where they were living with their family from their bank and um, their sibling was able to actually take that letter take it to the bank and and get money out of the account and that person was was helpless and it's simply because the address system is how we how we think about sending communications to customers which is just broken right
1: It's crazy, isn't it our most secure form of identity anybody with 30 minutes of Photoshop training can can break really really quickly <laughs> it's terrifying.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we'll use this story as an example for for basically rethinking an awful lot of different things and thinking about how things can be done in different ways to prevent these things happening in the future. So our next story is that India's Cred has raised $120 million to help people improve their financial behavior. So Cred is a nine-month-old Bangalore-based startup. It's building solutions to incentivize credit card users in India to become more responsible with money and thereby improve their credit score. So the company's raised 120 million in a Series B financing round, and about 145 million in total to date. The valuation is somewhere between 430 and 450 million dollars. Hundreds of millions of Indians today don't have a credit score because they have never taken a loan from a recognized entity, nor have they owned a credit card. Uh, So, according to the government's official figures, fewer than 50 million credit cards are in circulation in India currently. With industry reports suggesting that the actual number of unique credit card holders is about half of that. So basically, people have got, you know, more than one card. I wonder if I've just contradicted myself there, but it sounds like if this company's aim is to help people who have credit cards build their credit scores, what are they going to do about people who don't have credit
3: cards? They are specifically not focusing on the masses. So they, okay. they, they kind of want to take those who are, as they see, credit worthy and uh, helping them pay and, and use their services, it seems.
0: So they're, they're targeting on, on the niche market, which is Indians who have credit cards. That's interesting to me. I mean, there's there's a a quote from the cred CEO here, which says nobody taught us about how to use money. I guess you and me both mate. Um, But then it says this has created a huge trust gap in India. And I think, you know, facetiousness aside, the point he's making is that uh, for those Indians who did get credit cards, there was never any kind of, I don't know, for example, warning that you can only, you know, only borrow what you can afford to pay back. Um, You know, this is what an interest rate is. This is how that's going to go up when you use it. So so I think credit is trying to maybe um, help people who have credit cards understand. Stand those things.
4: Yeah, no, it's also about credit building, right? I think, uh, having read the story, I don't know much about the startup, but it feels similar to some credit cards that exist here in the UK aimed at people who need to build credit scores. Is, is that right?
3: It seems like that you have this in the US, 49% of American citizens have a, a bank with a credit union and a credit union's your local community bank that helps you start small and then eventually get onto like a credit system and build that up. But it seems to me that they are equally interested in the data of who is a good spender and who isn't. So they can ultimately offer you more loans and things, which has its advantages, but also risks and downsides. You know, we have Ant Financial and others in China, for instance, that is giving people like a score on how creditworthy you are. And that is fine to take out credit. But what happens when, you know, we've seen the series, right, Broken Mirrors, um, where it can get dangerous. So it
1: depends on where where they this I wonder on this one, the idea sounds good, but I think they're probably backing the jockey rather than the horse to a certain degree. So the CEO of this organization has already sold uh, his previous startup free charge for $400 million, which apparently is one of the only exits in the Indian fintech market to date. So I, I'm not sure, I, I see it as like a good idea. I'm not sure it's worth the amount of money that they're probably sort of chucking at this right now, but they're probably backing this guy because if he's managed to make it happen once, maybe he's going to do it again.
3: These are decent backers and, and they recognize that in the population of is it 1.1 billion or so, you're going to get 10 million or however many highly credible, well, that's not the right word, <laughs> individuals. Uh, credit worthy. Who, who are very credit worthy as they deem them. And then, if they're spending the majority of their money via this app, it can become incredibly powerful, or excuse me, via this service. So, they have probably thought through the potential value, and there's a lot of advantages to their plan. It's But there are downsides that you wouldn't have with a credit uh, union the way you do in the US. Mm, a good, yeah. Because they're a nonprofit, right? For yeah. a reason.
1: A good point, and potentially a marketing campaign all in one go there. That was good. <laughs> Making them credible. I like it. So, I mean, <laughs> if
3: you already have a credit card, I'm guessing and obviously you'd know much more but you don't need to be taught how to use money because if you're if from the outset you have been able to get a credit card it seems as though on average you are somewhat financially literate.
4: It's an interesting one so I don't know much about more the, than Indian, the average, I suppose, anyway. Indian market but here in the UK we've got lots of credit building credit cards Aqua, Vanquist, there are several others. They advertise, you know, in the middle of the day when people are at home um, it's almost like a new payday loan phenomena and yeah if you use them in the right way they can help you build credit um, or oh. yeah actually what they're I think becoming is is a really big problem in terms of a lot of people who need a a short-term fix, get the credit card, happy to spend in the short term, but don't necessarily have the ability or the kind of planning ahead to actually pay it off and and use it in a responsible way. And it can be a really big problem. I can see this if they want to create a new market in India, which um, I don't know whether that's the plan, potentially creating a lot of issues in terms of people building up lots of credit, having to pay it back and not necessarily having the uh, wherewithal to do so.
0: And we've certainly seen, um, you know, the launch of services um, in the UK, which is designed specifically to help people who need to consolidate their credit card debt because they've just taken out credit card after credit card after credit card, using one credit card to pay off another credit card's debt and getting themselves into terrible trouble that way. I mean, I think the problem is here, for me personally, I don't understand the Indian market well enough to know if this is
4: going to work. But interesting concept... And again, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. One other thing that I thought was interesting about it was that they're using rewards in quite an innovative way. And yeah, we haven't really seen that here in the UK or um, in other markets that I'm aware of. People actually encouraging good financial behaviour through like loyalty and, and rewards. So is it so is it rewards for spending carefully or well? You know, whichever term you
0: want to use, or as opposed to the rewards you tend to get here, which is for spending a lot.
4: Yeah, well, that's what it looks like. I don't know as much about the product, but yeah, there's some interesting stuff happening about rewards, I think.
3: I, I'd argue this is a a, a data play, not an, a wellness, a well-being or, or spending well play, uh, despite the messaging. But it will be
1: interesting to see where they take it. Hmm. I, I think that, that would be super interesting en masse then actually they can start lowering those rates, can't they, from a credit card perspective, to actually offset them against affiliate deals, like you say, in terms of the you know, to the gym memberships and various different things that they're sort of giving away. But interesting. A market with lots and lots of people, like um, there's definitely an opportunity for sure
0: lots of people and lots of potential. Okay. And onto our and finally story, which I think somebody must've let David pick, but here we go. K-Swiss just dropped a new line of sneakers, that's trainers, those of us in the UK, specifically designed for CEOs. So K-Swiss's new line of shoes is called the Startup Collection. The sneakers, trainers, come in three models and are specifically produced for travel, versatility, and made from sustainable material. First impressions matter, and these sneakers are purpose-built for the hustle, the grind, (laughs) sorry, I can't do it, Um, (laughs) and the journey of building your business and brand. I'm not going to read the rest of the advertising spiel because I can't do it with a straight face. Basically, I I can give you more detail, but I'm just going to pass straight over to David, who is the um, resident both CEO and trainer expert so I think this is definitely ball in your court
1: I'm actually wearing new trainers today actually I'm very proud of them but um, not a fan of these like the idea of like a CEO trainer seems really weird like do you have to be a point like do you have to prove it going back to the identity thing do you have to prove you're a CEO to get these trainers or and actually if you're then fired do they take away your shoes it seems like <laughs> weird punishment also the trainers suck like have you seen the 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 um, <laughs> The pictures of what, them? What's the zip on the side for? I don't know. They're weird. But, I mean, K-Swiss did a whole series of shoes with Gary Vee, didn't they? And some of those were actually pretty good design. You're looking at me like
0: I'm going to know that.
1: I'm looking at the wrong person. Okay. <laughs> um, for everybody's information, K-Swiss. Uh, so that, and they actually looked quite nice. But these just look really basic. I'm sorry. Um, K-Swiss
4: did trainers with Gary Vee. Oh, yeah. Oh, my fun. days. I know.
1: But some of those actually looked pretty good. They were kind of like okay. almost Air Force One-y kind of uh, vibe to them. But no, I mean, the idea that you need special shoes when you're a CEO is probably one perk too far.
0: I also wonder if it's people who like, is this aspirational?
1: Like, I want to be a CEO. I've got the CEO shoes. It seems to be maybe the new thing. I mean, like when I played basketball wearing a pair of Jordans, I felt like I could jump higher. (laughs) Does this like make you feel like you can make better decisions if you wear them? I don't know. You were wearing Jordans because
3: at the time it was like sports stars and just the way, you know, at some point... it was bankers and then consultants. And now it's like the entrepreneur CEO is the cool thing to be. So I I don't know if they're specifically targeting CEOs because most CEOs I know are too busy considering what they're buying or they're like really cheap. I've been happy with my 35 pound Clarks for the last five years. (laughs) I keep ordering the same pair, but uh, they are, I believe, the messaging is to the, those
1: aspiring to be like CEOs and uh, the busy life type I mean, of pitch. I mean, customizing Air Force Ones is like literally my only hobby right now. Like that's the only thing I do other than work. But uh, it's like a strange, you're looking at me well, very no, strange. Because, because I
0: thought Air Force One was an airplane. Which is why I was going <laughs>
1: Yeah, I, I, I picked Donald Trump's plane. That's what I, I mean. I
0: mean. Yeah, I don't know, maybe that's what you do in your spare time. <laughs> I just had this um, vision came into my head as well about the backlash against these or the potential backlash against these. Because I was thinking about the the gilets, you know, the um, which there was one company that made gilets for all the investment bankers in the Patagonia. Yeah, really. Thank you, producer Laura, um, who made all the branded gilets for the investment banks in the US. And then they had to like stop doing it because there was such a backlash against them and like the gilet culture. I don't know. I just feel like maybe I would have gone with, like, I don't know, let's just do, like, vegan shoes. That, that feels like something that might be more widely accessible. There's a reason I'm not in trainers, right? I'm exactly like her saying. I've bought the same pair of A6 black trainers, like, once a year for the last five years.
1: Once a month I buy new shoes, generally. It's getting to be, like, a, almost a problem. Almost a problem. Yeah, it helped <laughs> me, somebody. Do you have a special room for your shoes? Not yet, but I'm hoping one of the kids will move out soon. <laughs>
0: How old are your kids, David?
1: Yeah, it's going to be a while.
0: Right. On that note, I think we're done with the shoes. That wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to our guests for joining us. Where can people find out more about you,
2: Ben? Mainly chasing my son around Peckham Rye Park, but uh, <laughs> otherwise uh, Ben
3: Chazal on Twitter.
0: Perfect. Hussein, how about you? The
3: same. Hussein Kasai on Twitter.
0: Not chasing your son around Peckham Park. Hopefully not. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Bailey. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Bailey Talks. And we also do a newsletter about financial inclusion and fintech called Money Matters. You can find it at tinyletter.com slash toucan. Brilliant. David, how about you?
1: At David Breer on Twitter.
4: And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kaczynski.
0: So, what did you think of today's stories? Let us know on Twitter at FinTech Insiders or email podcast11fs.com. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Periscope. For more content, just search FinTech Insider. Uh, if you want to find the episode of On Air we mentioned earlier, you can find that on YouTube. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.